Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. In this sermon, we are taught that if we are believers, that the guilt of our sins are transferred to Christ and that His law-keeping and righteousness is credited to us. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Counted Righteous. chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Romans 4, 1 through 8, and where this fits in the uh, outline that we've been working through here. So we started chapter 4 last Sunday. We mentioned that there are seven main points uh, that are made in this passage here, and we worked through the first two of them. That salvation by faith is taught in the Old Testament. That was point number one that we saw. And then secondly, that salvation by faith is shown to us in God's saving Abraham. And as we worked through some of those subpoints, one of the ones that we saw is that Abraham was, the little phrase used there, credited as righteous. That truth there uh, comes all the way through this passage. It's actually spoken of 11 times in chapter four. So we're going to hone in on that phrase right there because to fully understand it, it does take some looking and showing where this connects in the rest of the Bible. So we're going to read the first eight verses and we see it three or four times, even in this first little section here. So we'll read, pray, and then specifically study this point. So begin with me in verse one, if you have a Bible. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh has found, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Please pray with me. Oh Lord our God, If you do not give us grace in this moment right now, Father, then everything we're trying to do will be in vain and we'll leave here exactly as we came. Father, we need your grace. But Father, we come to you wanting to claim those promises, O Lord, that when your people come to you in faith, seek your face, cry out for mercy, that you always give mercy. Father, we long to see your truths. We want to understand. We want to see what you're saying. We want to be, have the ability to think deeply and for our hearts to be changed. Father, for our lives to be transformed. So we ask, oh God, that you do this. Father, please do what only you can do. I ask God that you send your Holy Spirit. We know that he is here with us because sons and daughters have gathered together to seek your face. We know he is here, but Father, we ask that he will move and work powerfully in us, oh Lord. Father, the transformation will come. So those who are gathered, O God, who have trusted in Christ, 
They are following after you, are confident that they are right with you. God, I ask that you will work uh, the instruction that we need that brings this transformation, building us of us up. We want to have more knowledge, but knowledge not to just stay there, but to make us into more the image of Christ. But God, anyone who's gathered here in the room that has not yet turned from their sins, not yet come to trust in Christ for salvation as you call us to, Father, I pray that today would be the day, O Lord, that they are brought into your kingdom. They're made right with you. So Father, please give your grace. Please work. I need your help in all the many ways, uh, Lord, so that I do not say anything inaccurately or mess this up. Help me to teach faithfully the truth that's here, O God. And Father, help all of us to hear. We love you, God. Please protect this time. Bless the young ones back there, oh God, as they're going to hear the message of the gospel. And Lord, we've seen you save even young ones. Please make that, um, make that happen today, oh God. Please bless everything that'll happen. We ask all these things through the name of Christ. Amen. I want to start this morning with a, a bit of a defense for why we're going to study what we're going to study this morning. Um, and here's Here's why I give the defense. The masses now expect to show up to church, both to be uh, entertained and to hear their weekly, you're still awesome, now go get them. And the careful study of the word of the living God is often neglected. But we've committed here that we're going to systematically study through the scriptures, no matter how hard it is to hear. And there are days where it hurts. There are days where our egos are crushed by what scripture says, but also regardless of how hard it is to understand. And there are some parts of the Bible that really stretch us. And we leave here with headaches, need some Tylenol after we've wrestled with some of the truths and things that are there because God does not treat us as children. He calls us to go deep. And so we've committed, we're not gonna run away from what's hard. But here's, here's the defense. A coach will often have their players work some drills that sometimes the players think are pointless. Sometimes those players will complain to the coach. Coach, we should be shooting baskets. We should be scrimmaging. Why are we doing these stupid drills? I'm, I'm never going to use this. And there's a principle on display there. The coach has a higher knowledge than the players. The coach sees from a higher vantage point than the players. The coach knows that there are things that they need to develop that they can't even see yet that later on down the line, they're going to need. And we apply that principle to the scriptures. You know, the Bible is so surprising. If you've still yet never read it all the way through, it's so different than what you think it's going to be like. But it will oftentimes be confusing in that maybe you, you wake up and uh, you, you'd read a few chapters for your morning devotions and you, you cover some material that at the end of it, you're going, I'm not really sure how that's relevant for my life. But it's in that moment that there has to be trust in the giver of the scriptures. That there are things that we need that we don't yet understand that we need. And oftentimes as we get down the road later in Christianity, 
then we start to figure out, okay, that's why God said that. I had one of those moments even this week studying for this message, one of those big light bulb moments that like a passage that has always baffled me. All of a sudden it's like, okay, I get it now. Needed this truth and this truth together to understand this truth. This is what God works. This is what God brings. All of scripture is relevant. God didn't speak from heaven the definitive message to mankind and say things that don't matter. We need every verse of it, every sentence, every phrase, every word. And this morning we find ourselves examining one of those passages where some of the skeptical types, I would expect none of you in this room, but out there somewhere, some of those skeptical types might say, why do we need this? I mean, who cares? Just tell me how to be a good dad or something. Why, why get so precise on the wording of sentences? Now, I think that by the time we're done today, all of us will see why we need this, but that principle still has to be put out there just simply because of where we are in culture. We're in a passage where this truth is being explained and argued. So here's the central idea of the whole chapter. Let me give it to you in about five or six sentences or so. You by your own doing are not right with God. And the only way that you can be justified before God, so, so that means to be declared innocent, to be pardoned, to be made right with God and therefore have eternal life. The only way for you to have this is to turn to Christ in faith. You cannot be saved. You cannot be right with God based on your works or some inner goodness that you may claim. No, no amount of religious devotion is going to make you fit for heaven. You have no way of achieving your own righteousness. But God offers forgiveness and pardon in a moment as a gift when we turn to Christ in submissive trust. The whole chapter is, is worded and, and taught so as to teach that point. And then there's one more part here to the central idea. The whole chapter is making the argument from the Old Testament, showing that this is nothing new in this new covenant with Christ. This has been the way of being made right with God. It's been by faith ever since the book of Genesis. So that's been shown. But in making that point, there's another truth that is closely attached to this. Part of how it's taking us deeper into this doctrine, okay? So salvation by faith. There's another truth that we're shown. Remember how I said that the gospel is like a recipe, with numerous ingredients, numerous truths, individual truths that all come together to form the message of the gospel. If you're new to studying the Bible, you've probably heard the word gospel, but may not know exactly what it refers to. The gospel means good news, and it is the central message of the Bible. The central message of the Bible is the most critical truth that you need to hear, that your soul can have eternal life, but you can miss it. But God has offered eternal life through Christ by faith. Being made right with God through faith. There's a lot more to the gospel that's there, but all these individual truths make up this message. For instance, if you're going to understand the message of the gospel, you got to know who Jesus is. Who is he? Is he just a man? 
Or is he the divine son of God, Lord of heaven, savior, the Messiah, the only hope that we have? If you're going to understand the gospel, you got to understand those individual truths. And there are others that this book of Romans is walking us through. Like, how do I get this forgiveness from God? By faith. That's another truth. So all of these individual truths that make up the message of the gospel, and we have another one right here. By faith, we are counted as righteous or credited with righteousness. We're reckoned as righteous. We are not actually righteous by our doing or by our works or by our obedience. We are regarded as if we are legally. That is for those who have turned to faith in Christ. And it's a pretty deep truth. Um, In the past, I've told you that if you want to see how important the truth is, like how much weight it has Look and see how many times it's repeated in a passage or in the Bible. Well, in this passage right here, in chapter four, this truth, uh, this word that we're looking at, that word credited, that's the key word we're honing in on. The Greek word is used here in this chapter 11 times. And then we're actually going to come back to it in chapter five. It's mentioned in chapter six and chapter seven. So this is, this is a theme that we see brought up numerous times. If we're going to rightly understand what God has done in the point of history, the sending of his son in order to save souls out of hell, bring them into eternal life, then we've got to understand this phrase and what it is that God is doing here. So to look at this, I've got two main points um, that I intend to make to try to accurately teach this truth here. So if you're taking notes, uh, here is point number one, imputation. I know that's not a word we use in your regular everyday life, probably have not used that in the last week. But we're, we're seeing here that there is a truth that God is showing in this. So we're gonna explain it here, imputation. If you're a toddler, were to ask you, Daddy, how does a car work? You know, that four-year-old doesn't yet have the categories for comprehending combustion and spark plugs and cylinders and things. So you might just simply reply, well, it has an engine. The engine makes it run. In a similar kind of way, when we talk about what God has done in Christ in order to make a way for us to have eternal life, we can just very simply say something like, Jesus died for our sins. But the realities of that are a lot more complex. The Bible addresses our greatest need. You have a soul that can never extinguish. And the Bible tells us that unless something drastic happens, you are headed to an eternity of being cut off from the grace of God. This is what hell is. Hell is the place where we are cut off from all of God's kindness, his love, his mercy, his joy, his goodness, his pleasure. See, the Bible says the exact opposite of what we're all the time hearing out there in culture from the world, every song on the radio and every message that we're constantly hearing. The Bible says the exact opposite. The Bible looks at us and says, you're not good enough. You're not fit for heaven. How's that for your ego? How's that for your self-esteem? 
God looks down from heaven and says, you are not fit to have eternal life. But the, the message of the Bible, which is the storyline of history, is how God has worked in history to make a way for us to be delivered out of what we deserve and brought to eternal life. That's that message that we call the gospel. While God is just, he's also merciful. He extends this offer to the entire earth. Come to him in the way that he says, we can't just make up our own way. Come to him in the way that he says, and everyone who comes for mercy gets mercy. That's an amazing deal. But how does it happen? How does it work? How, how do I get this? Well, like the dad who replies to his daughter about the engine, we can just say, Jesus died for sins. But the reality is much more complex than that. There are complexities to the death of Christ. And that's what we studied in chapter three, what we call the atonement. How did, how did Jesus's death work? Like, what was at play there? God's justice, God's, God's wrath. How, how does all of that happen? That was chapter three. Well, then Jesus has by his death and by his resurrection purchased benefits for his people, all who come to him. What are those benefits? What do we get in Christ? Well, we're going to be studying that. In chapter 5, numerous of those are rattled off. All of chapter 8, by the way, is just heralding out, here are the glories of what we have in Christ. But how do those benefits that Jesus purchased, how do they come to us? That's chapters 4 and 5. That's what we're looking at right there. We can sum it up very simply by saying, faith. If you're going to put just a one word title to chapter four, it would be this, faith. But there are deeper things here. There are complexities in how by faith we get these benefits. And that's some of what is being shown here as we see this instruction that by faith we are counted as righteous. So what does this mean? Well, the word used there, like if you look, for instance, in verse three, Look at it again. This is actually a quote from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, verse six. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word credited there, that's the key word. If you drop down there to verse eight and see where it says they're using David as an example. So they're another Old Testament figure. David as an example, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into Account, that word account, same Greek word that is there. It's the Greek word logizomai. I don't say that so we can all try to feel smart this morning, but if you hear in that, this is where we've gotten our English word logic. Don't read too much into that because root words can often produce many words. But we can kind of see the point there in that some of the use of this word refers to to think of or to consider or to regard someone as this. So let me start us off with an illustration. Here's a true story. A teacher gave a test and the test was ridiculously hard, like basically unpassable for the age range. So the whole class takes the test and the whole class bombs the test, like bombs it badly. Teacher comes back the next day after having graded it and said, this went horribly. So I've decided not to count this test against you. That use of the word there, to count it, that's an illustration of what's happening here. 
the class took the test. They bombed it. They bombed it bad. But he says, I'm not going to count it against you. And yes, there's a reason why I know that story so well. I was in that class, bombed it, but I learned about logitsumai, okay? So we're not going to count this against you. So we might say that the class was not legally counted as failing, even though they did fail the test. The teacher has the authority to decide that kind of thing. So it was a, it was a right, it was a righteous thing. He could make that. But this is a word that was often used in the Greek language in economic situations. So see a couple different uses here. To credit money to someone's account. So in that scenario, there is a real giving of something tangible. To credit money, that was the use of this word. But it also was included in things like to consider someone guilty, to consider someone innocent. That use of consider that's there. That is all of this as well. Here are some other English words that are sometimes translated as this one. The word reckoned. Did you ever hear your grandparents maybe say something? Well, I reckon. Well, I reckon he just wasn't in his right mind. Okay, well, what are they saying there? Okay, it's I consider him. I think of him in this way. Also, the word we, we, we've reversed there in verse 8, the word account. The Lord does not uh, charge a sin against those that he forgives. The word regarded, like you may say of someone, I regard him as an honest man. It's meaning I think of him in this way. I consider him this way. An older word, but a word that we do need to understand because it comes up quite a few times in the Bible or at least the principle of it. That's this word impute. So that's why we call this point imputation. The word impute, we see in the Bible in times like in the Old Testament on the, on the day of atonement. Whenever that, that lamb or that goat was brought forward to be an offering. And there would come a moment that the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that offering and it symbolized the transfer of guilt from the people to the offering. That transfer, that's imputation. That, that symbolic act of that offering was now counted as guilty, was considered guilty. God set this up in the Old Testament as a way to preach a 1,500-year sermon that we would understand the gospel of Christ. That the day would come that Christ would act as the Lamb of God and our sins would be transferred to Him on the cross. But on that day of atonement, the high priest represented the people. The one stood for the many. And that high priest would symbolically impute guilt onto that sacrifice. The sacrifice would be slain. Its blood gathered in a basin and then brought into the Holy of Holies where that blood was then sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. And that symbolized the throne of God. And that whole thing preached this sermon. It shows us the blood of the sinner must be slain. Death must come to the one who breaks the law of God. But when that, when that blood was spilt, when it was sprinkled onto the throne of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God was 
satisfied. It was pacified. There was, there was no longer a need for justice to be executed in that moment. It was satisfied. And from chapter three, if you remember that big word there was propitiated, the wrath of God satisfied. But the whole part about the guilt of the people transferred to the offering. That's this word imputation. The sacrifice was considered guilty, counted guilty, reckoned as guilty before God. It was imputed with guilt. And then the people, the offerers of worship were counted as innocent. They were regarded as innocent. They were imputed with innocence before God. So now that we kind of see that, your mind is probably going to all kinds of places right now. Many, many places in the Bible where this is the underlying principle that is there. This word is used 31 times in the New Testament. Uh, there were 41 different passages from the Bible uh, that we could go to today, but I'm not going to keep you all day here. Uh, so we won't look up all 41 of those, but literally from Genesis to Revelation, and it is in Genesis and in Revelation, this principle is shown all through the scripture. This is a foundational kind of truth that we got to understand in order to understand a whole lot of parts of the Bible. Here's another one to tie it in today, to tie this into baptism. Uh, if you're in the book of Romans and you want to flip over maybe just one page to chapter six, look here for a second at something. Chapter six, start in verse three. Look, look what it says here. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, he's going to say more here in a second, but I want you to consider that. What is being said there? For you who have responded to Christ, and you have followed that up with baptism, it says you've been baptized into Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean at your baptism, you were like literally transported through time to be there on the day of Jesus' death? No, what, what, what's, what's talking about here is you're counted, counted as though you were there. There is a union with Christ. There is a, uh, a uniting that occurs by this reckoning, by this imputation. And this is, you know, this is part of the reason why we practice baptism the way that we do, why we believe uh, that believers baptism by immersion is the biblical way to do this. You know, for one, it's the only way that we see it done in the Bible. Secondly, we see the instruction that only disciples were baptized in Scripture, meaning those who had turned to trust in Christ, but also this, and I want you to think about this. Believer's baptism, where someone who has chosen to trust in Christ follows, follows up their faith by being publicly baptized, that's the only way that this whole picture holds, that when that believer goes under the waters is picturing the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Sprinkling or even pouring breaks down that picture, that metaphor that is there. Death was not sprinkled onto Jesus. Jesus was submerged into death and buried and then raised again. And the rest of the passage goes on to say that if we have been united with Christ in his death, we'll be united with him in his burial and in his resurrection. This whole picture is a part of that and inherent to that is being counted as united with Christ. So this is all through the Bible. It's so much a part of it. We couldn't list all of this off. So now let me address this part right here. 
someone hearing this for the first time could say, all right, um, I hear what you're saying, but I got some trouble with this. Because what you're saying is that there are times where God calls something this, and it's, it's not this. Like that seems dishonest. Like how can that be righteous? There are times where somebody's counted something and they're not actually that. So isn't that like lying? So here's another illustration. Uh, a teacher is standing at her window. She looks out and sees one of her students walking up the sidewalk. The bell's about to ring. This little boy trips and falls, spills all his books, and it's raining outside. He picks them all up and he comes into class about 20 seconds after the bell rings. So he's technically tardy. Technically, he's going to get marked for that. But the teacher says, I'm not going to count you as late. Somebody could say, all right, I guess she's trying to be nice, but it's dishonest. Like it's not real. So how is this okay? Well, that's a legitimate question. And the answer is it's possible for this principle to be used for something that is a lie or unrighteous. In fact, we see it all the time. So, so for instance, uh, Proverbs 17, 15. Don't have to turn there, but what we're told there is, it's, um, it, it's a wicked thing if an earthly judge justifies a guilty man or condemns an innocent man. That, that's unrighteous, that's, that's not just. But if that's the case, then how is it okay for God to pardon sinners? If that's the case, then we who have broken God's law and the whole first part of the gospel says that we are in need of this, how is it okay? And friends, that's the whole point of Jesus' death and resurrection, of why his obedience to the law of God, why his death can count for us, why his resurrection can be for our deliverance. The whole point is God did not disregard justice. God did not do something unrighteous. He's worked in such a way, in even a legal and technical way, that Jesus' death can count as ours. God did not just see that we all blew it and say, all right, scrap this, didn't work, Y'all are forgiven. That's not the way that it works. Justice must be satisfied. The wrath of God must be poured out on evil. So what God did in grace is gave what was most precious to him. And Jesus took our wrath, my stupidity, my sin, my rebellion, the justice for that cast on to him so that in Christ I can be forgiven. The point is God has done this in a righteous and just way. There is a way in which it is done rightly. And friends, if we just continue to think of this, we use this all the time, even in our American legal system. What is adoption? Adoption is counting a child as yours. And so they become yours. And that's a legal thing. Do you see the point there? A mother and father set their love on a child and then count them as theirs and they become a part of their family. And you know, never ever would that mother or father ever say of that child, you know, well, they're not really mine. I just count them as mine. No, because you have counted them as yours, they are adopted into that family. They become that in a legal kind of way. That is this principle at play when aging parents appoint their children to be given power of attorney 
and their children make decisions on behalf of their parents. Uh, you, you have this principle that is there. We recognize legally commissioned representatives to sign documents on behalf of CEOs and governing leaders. That's this principle at play here. So what does this mean for us then? Here's the second point imputed righteousness. And I'm going to give you five passages. If you're taking notes, five passages to jot down, take a look at maybe some more on your own, but I'm going to, I'm going to read them to them, to you. When Christ went to the cross, according to the plan of the father and bore the wrath of God, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. You turn there if you like, but I'm going to read it to you just really quickly. But listen carefully. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus was on the cross, did he literally become sin? No, he was counted as sin. He was reckoned as sin by God in order to be our substitute. And then here's another big reveal in this though, friends. See, there's, there's a double part here. There's a double imputation, a double substitution that on the cross, our sins of those who are in Christ, our sins were counted as on to Christ. And then by faith at the moment of conversion, Jesus's law keeping, Jesus's righteousness then gets counted as ours. You have a double counting, a double substitution that is there. And we don't understand the full gospel if we don't see both parts of this. My sins onto Christ and Christ's righteousness counted as ours. Beside our name in heaven, if you are in Christ, it is written, righteous. Look at Isaiah chapter 53 for a moment or just jot it down. I'm going to read it to you very quickly. Isaiah 53, starting in verse four. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Now, let me pause there for a moment on that one. If you don't believe that sentence right there, all of us like sheep have gone astray. You do not believe even the first part of the gospel. If you don't believe that sentence right there, which does run contrary to everything that you hear from the world, that you're awesome, you're amazing, and you're, you're already enough, you've got everything that you need. You won't understand even the first part of the gospel and even why the Bible was written. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's imputation. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1. I'll just let you look that up sometime on your own. You see this whole principle? Jesus's righteousness made ours by faith, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. I will ask you to turn to this one. Book of 1 Corinthians right after the book of Romans, so don't have to go very far. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me read verse 18 to you, kind of get the context. Verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross, 
By the way, that's another way of saying the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what the world thinks of the message of Christ. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The rest of the passage this go, then goes on to explain how Christ saves those who trust in him. But then jump down to verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. These are the things that when we are united to Christ are brought to us. In him we get this. And it would be another message to look at how Jesus is our wisdom, how Jesus is our sanctification and redemption. But what we're told here is our righteousness comes from Christ. And then just one last one and a really wonderful one. Philippians 3, 9. Philippians 3, 9. Let me read it to you. Paul says, everything is lost so that I may gain Christ. And then he says this, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you see it again? Guys, this is the consistent message of the Bible. There really shouldn't be confusion on this. It is aggravating that there is rejection of this truth. The reason why I'm going to such lengths, you may be saying, man, why is pastor like really going to all this trouble? It's because throughout history, this truth has been rejected again and again. Because let me tell you why this truth is so hated. Because what this truth is saying is you cannot make yourself fit for heaven. And the natural man hates that. Preacher, tell me I'm really good. Preacher, tell me how awesome I am again. Preacher, get me fired up about myself and my self-esteem. The Bible preaches and calls down from heaven and says, you have nothing, nothing you can bring before God. The greatest prayer you have ever prayed in your life has enough sin attached to it to condemn your soul to hell. The Bible says our best righteousness is like soiled garments in the eyes of the Lord, before God, if you stand on the day of judgment and you reject this and you think, well, I'm good enough, I'm gonna stand before him and I'm gonna show him all of my good, you have nothing. People imagine that scale in heaven, my good works on one side, my bad works on the other. Here's what the Bible says, you have no good deeds. Uh, yes, you've done things that have obeyed in a kind of way, but what the Bible shows is that even this, the greatest work you have ever done has had evil motives attached to it. We have not a single act we can lay on there that is absolutely pure. Everything has been tainted by the poison of sin. You have nothing. And we are to feel our desperation in that. And then look to Christ. We don't understand the gospel unless we see it has all been done by Christ. It's not one of these, well, I do my part. Jesus did his part. Your part is to run from God. That's the only thing you contribute is your sin. Christ has accomplished everything. Forgiveness is God declaring, I will count my son's death as the payment for your unrighteousness. 
And in the books beside your name, I will write out righteous. This is what we mean when we talk about the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. This is what we mean when we sing those hymns that we do. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Many understand the first part about the blood, but not the righteousness part. Or that hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. John Wesley wrote, no condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We bring nothing. All that we have is our hope in Christ. Apart from Christ, you have no righteousness. In Christ, you have all righteousness. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And in Christ, you are counted as if you had. It's like God took the robe of Christ's righteousness off of him and has wrapped it around his people so that when you appear before God, he sees this. Friends, this is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel is. The gospel is by faith in the son of God, you will be counted as righteous. And if you change the word credited, you change the gospel. If you erase out imputation, you lose. I'm not trying to say that it's not possible if somebody doesn't understand or even if they get it wrong, that salvation is not possible. I don't think that, but I even say that with trepidation. But we lose much of the glory of the gospel. There's always a cost when we get truth wrong. There's a cost to your soul. There's a cost to your understanding of the gospel. And every time this, this truth right here has been distorted in church history, they're about one generation away from complete heresy. See, when Christians don't study church history, they sometimes come up with some new belief and they think they're really innovative. They think they're the first ones from history. What they don't realize is we've already been here eight times and every time you're one generation away from heresy when this is lost. Because friends, whenever you lose this part that Christ's righteousness is imputed to me, you start to think in terms of this. How am I right with God? If it doesn't come from outside of myself, where does it come from? Within. I produce it. And when you think that you make yourself right before God, you have lost the gospel. You have lost the whole thing of what it means, Christ in our place. The gospel declares you must be saved. The gospel declares you are not on your own fit for heaven. God's not mean in saying that. He is inviting you to come and have complete forgiveness. And if you're hearing this and this sounds like really new to you, maybe you've even been raised in church your whole life. I do want to say it is a very frustrating thing for even churches and Christian groups to reject parts of the Bible. Of course, that's frustrating, but don't think 
that just because there is confusion in some places that the truth is unknowable. Here's what I beg you to do. Read the Bible yourself. If you read nothing else but Romans chapters 3 and 4, you will see this taught again and again. You must be saved. And the way we receive that is to remove our trust from ourselves. Remove our trust from anywhere else it might be and to place it in Christ alone. Not half Christ and half my works. All in Christ and faith is how we receive this. Friends, Jesus is King. He is Lord of heaven. He is the only Savior. Even if you don't want that or reject that, He is. But if you receive Him, meaning to acknowledge that, believe the truth, but more than believe the truth, trust Jesus Himself. Embrace Christ. Then you will share in the benefits that he offers. Look to Christ and be credited as righteous. Today in the baptisms, we celebrate with those who have looked to Christ. That baptism that we're going to experience this afternoon is not what saves them. It is recognizing and displaying, I have trusted in Christ and is the public demonstration of that. So before we close here, we're going to pray here in just a second. Let me ask... Uh, Mr. Justin, Ms. Maya, if you'll come up here, please. I told them they didn't have to say anything, but at least coming up here. It's a way of presenting them to the church family. Today they'll be baptized, demonstrating their faith in Christ, but this is also the moment when they officially become members of the church family. So church family, uh, please welcome them uh, into the body today. Let me close by praying for us. Oh, Lord, our God. Father, have mercy on us, we pray. Father, I, I pray that every single soul in this room will look to Christ. A every opposition that may be in minds or hearts against your truth, Lord, I ask, please break those stumbling blocks down. Show them that this is clearly what you say in your word and draw them to you. Please bless Justin and Maya. Bless their life in Christ. I pray that they will grow immensely. Strengthen them in the days ahead. Use them for your glory. Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled, Counted Righteous. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.